Hello and welcome to the Alternative GCSE podcast. My name is Emma Howe. Let's get started. And I have been dealing with education and in education now for many, many years in many different capacities. And this podcast is designed to enlighten you about all different topics related to education. Doesn't matter whether you are in education yourself, whether you're a parent, whether you've been through school yourself. And I think that covers pretty much everyone. Um, but these topics are really, really important and really affect the next generation. Now, today, what we're going to be talking about is the 11 plus. And I've titled this one, Why is an academic success available to everyone? The issue of the 11 plus. You see, many education policies, um, they're kind of the rules and the way that we do things are formed from many, many, many years of social policies from different governments over decades and decades. A layering of government ideas piled on top of one another with very little input from the people who actually work in education on the grassroots. For example, teachers, head teachers, students. And often they don't benefit the learners, the kids directly. And this is definitely true for the UK. So here's a little rundown of our timeline, a little bit of a history lesson for you guys. Before 1883, if you were a kid growing up in the UK, you would be expected to go out to work from the age of around four years old. It's completely mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, we wouldn't even consider four-year-olds now. Now, for most four-year-olds, they're just grappling with the idea of going to reception and the world around them, and we're really supportive of that. But the Victorians in 1883, along with the support of factories, saw that children worked a lot. I actually decided that maybe they should learn a little bit as well. The idea of childhood wasn't really a thing back then. Uh, So they decided that all children should be afforded the rights of a free education. And often schools were either inside or near to the factory in which the children worked because their parents and families often worked in those factories. It was actually very difficult for those early schools and an awful lot of children and teenagers did not like the idea of being forced to go to school. If you think about it, many of them had been working for years and years. An eight-year-old would have done four years worth of work already. So the idea of them going almost backwards in their minds to school was something very, very strange. In some of the most deprived areas of the UK, it was an uphill struggle to get the kids to comply and not to go back to work, as many families depended on the income of their young children just to survive and eat every day. So genuinely, they saw very little benefit of them needing to read and write because many of their immediate family, their parents, their grandparents, they'd got through life, although most died by the age of 40 because they were so unwell and worked too much. But most of them had got by without reading, needing, uh, having the need to read or write. But as time continued, the idea of going to school up until the age of 16 and now 18 has thankfully become the norm. Around 60 years later, from the Victorian periods, we hit post-World War II and the UK shifted its idea of school and opened more specialised secondary schools. I've jumped a little bit in time there. This is called the Tripartite System and it was established by the 1944 Education Act, which created three types of state-funded, which means you don't have to pay for them, secondary schools. This is where the 11 plus system was born because the results of the 11 plus would determine which school the pupil attended. I remember my dad telling me about this because he was born in 1952 and he, in his own words, failed the 11 plus and ended up not at the grammar school, which even now, even though he's 70, uh, he still talks about that. (laughs) So 
academic pupils, if you did really, really well in the 11 plus, you would attend a grammar school. Um, technical pupils would attend technical schools and practical pupils, which is, you know, the ones that didn't do very well in this very narrow minded test. Uh, they would attend secondary modern schools. But in reality, there weren't that many technical schools. The technical schools were kind of training people to become uh, plumbers and mechanics and that kind of thing. They were, there weren't many that were built. And in most areas of the countries, there was really just a two-tier system, the grammar schools and then the practical schools. That was then. Fast forward 100 years to the 1980s, which was well before I was born, may I hasten to add. Um, a lady called Margaret Thatcher known as the Iron Lady due to her very tough exterior and very hard stance on policy at the time, wanted as many teenagers in the UK to achieve as much as she did. You see, she benefited from the grammar school that she attended, having come from a low-income family and managed to get to the high rankings of being the first female UK Prime Minister, which was and still is a pretty big deal. Although today, uh, as I'm recording this, Liz Trust has just become the Prime Minister. She is, I believe, the third Prime Minister that is a female. So go back to Margaret Thatcher. She placed a heavy emphasis on grammar schools, and so she pushed, pushed for as much funding for them as possible. That was in the 1980s. 20 years later, the Labour government was introduced. I probably will do a whole episode on politics because it's quite interesting and I'm going to try and convince my brother who is an expert on this field to come on and talk to me about it. So Labour uh, in the 2000s introduced loads of ideas in education. Margaret Thatcher was from the conservative point of view which is very much helping the middle and upper class to do better in life. They are getting better at helping working and lower class people, although the class system is kind of there still, but it is fading away. In the 2000s, Labour, who really supports working class, especially people, uh, introduced ideas into education. And arguably, the most controversial one was the academisation of schools. I think I've mentioned academisation of schools a couple of episodes ago in the teaching podcast. Basically, it's where a business can essentially run and take charge of a secondary school. Now, in principle, this is a great idea because businesses have amazing systems in place to manage funds, manage people and manage resources. But the huge major flaw in this is that schools are not businesses. They should never have been set up to be passed on to businesses. And the major issue coming out of academizations or academies, as you will, call, you will know them, is that increasingly kids that go to them, this is primary school, nurseries or academies as well, and secondary schools, every single child is seen as a number on a data sheet. And there is very little room for individualization of anything. One such classic example of this is sixth form. Now, I've experienced this personally with a lot of the kids that I teach. A lot of the teenagers I work with actually outperform the grades that they were initially set. And if a child 
it gets, for example, amazing grades like grade seven and eight in sciences. They've demonstrated amazing mathematical capability, but they were put in the foundation math set and they were not allowed to move up because it was a risk. It's it's seen as a risk if you move a child from the foundation paper into the higher paper. And as an academy, you want to ensure that all of your kids pass the GCSE. So that on that lovely pamphlet, which I'll come on to in a second, for the year seven parents, it looks amazing. So going back to this, if you do really, really well in science, get sevens, get to eights in physics and chemistry, but you only get grade five in maths, most schools will not let you do physics. That's insane, isn't it? I've had a few people that have worked with me and actually fallen in love with science again because I'm quite practical, hands-on, doing labs, but all over the place and chaotic, but I think that's how learning should be. But isn't it crazy that if somebody finds a love of a subject and a drive and they want to become an engineer or they want to do something like that, because of one grade out of all of the other 11 that they took, it wasn't enough, they're not seen as a good enough risk to take on. One of my favourite scientists is Brian Cox, and I was really lucky to go and see him uh, last weekend. His show is fabulous, and he is such an incredible physicist. He does break down really complicated physics and space ideas down to appeal to a wider audience. He's been on loads of amazing BBC documentaries and Recently, his Horizons tour, which I was lucky to go on, had well over 80 dates, sold out dates in America and the UK. It's a visual lecture on space and physics. This guy is 55 now, but he actually failed his A-level maths. This is an example of what I'm talking about, of somebody failing but having a passion. But Manchester University saw that he had this really big passion for physics and he and a desire to learn it. And they actually took a gamble on it, on him. And imagine if they hadn't have done this, he wouldn't have inspired so many people to pursue a love of physics now, and he would not be doing the things that he does now if Manchester University had not taken him on. What happens if he hadn't have gone to sixth form to do physics or maths because the academy didn't see him as a big enough gamble to take? It's just crazy. So as well as the devastating, in my opinion, impact of academies on personal level, seen on a personal level, it's COVID. Now, I know it's a time we would all rather forget, but it is important to look at what went wrong during this time. And for education, it was an awful lot, especially in this country. COVID for many teachers triggered the premature end of their career and they felt unsupported and overwhelmed with having to learn how to move lessons and resources online and change their whole method of teaching in a matter of days. Many teachers felt lost, confused and unsupported by management and many had no idea how to work Zoom or how to use online platforms to engage their learners. With teachers leaving in such vast quantities now and an increasing number of pupils being taught by different supply teachers as schools race to find people to fill these spaces, it's no wonder that many young people have enormous gaps in their learning, which has accumulated since the pandemic. And this doesn't just happen in the worst schools. Teachers are leaving in droves across education 
And it doesn't matter if you go to a grammar school, if you go to a private school, if you go to the best school in your area, your child will have the issue of not having consistent good teaching. So how can any of this be solved? Well, most people look to Finland and this country does have an incredible reputation for being the best in the world. But how do they do it? And how do they have such high success rate for academic achievement for pupils? They don't have 11 plus. They don't have many private schools. I think they have a handful. I could count on my hands how many they have. Well, they realized that their education system was broken in the 50s. Around the same time, just a bit later, that the 1944 Act, we changed our system to the tripartite system. These guys changed their system or thought about changing it in the 1950s. They knew they wanted to change it, but they also realized it would be expensive to do so. And they wanted to get it right. So they actually spent nearly two decades, so 20 years in many talks, They included teachers, people that work in government, young educators, university professors to debate about what the right system would be for their country. However, once they had the final idea after 20 years of talks, they actually received huge opposition. Many people were not happy with it, especially from universities who believed the system would not work because it was a system where every single pupil would be supported and could succeed. Universities wanted to have a hierarchy. So some people getting into university and some people not. The universities argued that if everyone is treated the same, that it might encourage everybody to have degrees. And so degrees would be less valuable. The basic idea and the foundation of the system that many universities were opposed to was that education should be taught in the same amount of pupils and that each pupil had the capability to achieve as much as the next person. And this is the crucial bit, irrespective, so in spite of background, class or parents. They went ahead anyway. And the new system was first implemented in the 1970s and was free to all. It was a universal system with the crucial aim of improving its citizens' quality of life. It was completely radical at the time, and it still is. If we look at how it has evolved in the last 50 years, not only is Finland one of the happiest nations on earth, according to the United Nations statistics, but it is also one which has barely any private schools because the free education system is so good. It has incredibly low crime rates and people in Finland are all highly educated and well-rounded citizens. There's no such thing as 11 plus or entrance exams I've already mentioned because every single child is seen as themselves and every teacher is taught that all children can succeed, which is most of you is most of you listening to this can see is very different to the UK. In England, we have this really, really horrible culture, which they don't have in Finland, known as parentocracy. This is a term coined by a sociologist called Bell, and it's also known as the market of schools. If you do sociology, uh, sorry, sociology at GCSE or A-level or even university, you'll understand this phrase. So for those of you that don't know, You've all seen your schools prepare for year seven open evening, probably happening around now, actually, by the time this is released. 
There are glossy pamphlets for prospective year seven parents boasting the school's vast amount, sorry, costing the school's vast amounts of money, producing professionally and often created with sleek images, which are curated by very expensive photographers to literally sell the school to future parents. Really, during this show at the beginning of the academic year, each school is simply masking the cracks and putting on a performance. The head teachers wouldn't mention in their speeches to new parents the staff shortages in their speeches. They they wouldn't mention bullying in the school, the long waiting list for pupils in need to see a psychologist. They wouldn't mention the lack of training that staff receive about social media or the learning differences and the fact they can't manage them. They wouldn't mention any of that, but it happens in every school. And I know because I've worked with so many children and teenagers from a vast background of schools. All of this leads to people spending thousands in tuition to get their child a place at the most, inverted commas, prestigious school. And even moving house to ensure they're within catchment area for some of the best schools. Now, for some of the best schools, the catchment area, which is the kind of area around the school where you're guaranteed a place regardless of how academic you are can be as small as 1,500 meters where house prices can typically be 30 to 40 percent more just for the purpose of getting your child a place at a good state school good grammar school sometimes this is the 11 plus industry and it's hideous and I worked in it for a couple of years It's so stressful for so many, for everybody actually involved. And I had to stop working in this particular field because it is such an unfair test and will make many children feel like failures at the age of 10 or 11. Many kids start preparing for this exam at the age of five or six. It's wrong. And I know of some children who have tutoring for the 11 plus from the age of five or six for up to two to three hours a week. Many parents don't really understand that the test is so different to everything and anything that they do in school. It's more of an obscure IQ test. And if you aren't reading Pride and Prejudice and Charles Dickens to your child from an early age, their vocabulary is not going to be good enough to pass it. It's literally ridiculous. During this time, the time I worked in the 11 plus industry, um, I could help people and kids to get partially paid scholarships to some of the most elite top private schools in the North London area. But these same children who demonstrated such flair for writing and reading couldn't pass the 11 plus exam for Hertfordshire or Buckinghamshire. Isn't that crazy? The most baffling thing for me is this constant need by schools to compete for having the best pupils, the most funding, the best teachers and the best of everything. I struggle with why we have got to a stage where an elite education system is not accessible to all. What would happen in the UK if all students have the support and resources to achieve the best they possibly could? If Finland is anything to go by, 
they'll be happier and healthier kids. And if you remove things like the 11 plus system and the copious amounts of homework, I'll do an episode on homework another day, then it would free up more time and finance for parents to actually enjoy time with their kids and not to worry about them ending up in the worst school in the area because there would be no hierarchy. I had to laugh. I had my little girl's fifth birthday uh, back in June and at my house and she had some friends over and their mums as well. And one of the mums was talking about the 11 plus exam. And I have heard from many people that the 11 plus is always a conversation that people have early, but I'd never experienced it firsthand. And the mum was talking about it and I immediately heard a hush around the mums and some dads as well to listen in because it's such a concern for so many parents. You get your child into a decent primary school and then straight away your mind, even though they're four or five, turns to secondary school. It can provide so much stress and anxiety for parents that are then filtered down to other kids, to their kids. And it's it's strange. But it's become this culture and this norm in this country. Two MIT professors, Banerjee and Dufflo, see education as supply. And I love their phrasing. They argue that great education for all is a basic human right. And I completely agree. I'm sure you do too. But we live in a demand approach, which means parents demand and choose. And so we're in this cycle where schools compete with one another and where we have unfair systems and very different exam results between schools, which is completely unfair and a biased system working against our kids. If we change this to a more level playing field, the effects on society could be quite incredible. So in the 50 years since Finland introduced their system, the child poverty rate is just under 5% compared to the UK. Where living standards, poverty and inequality in the UK, these are some data points from 2022, so very recent. Um, They published results actually just before the pandemic. And this was really staggering for me to read. 25% of children in the UK live in absolute poverty, which for a two-parent family with two young children is defined as having a weekly income below £363 after bills and things. It's crazy. Uh, When I was uh, researching for this podcast, I actually found this the most difficult part to learn. The hardest part for me is that if we raise the academic success success and ability for everyone, no matter what background, then so many more doors would open to people and there would be far less poverty, more children that grow up in happy and healthy environments and services like social services and the police force would not be as stretched. I spoke about an awful lot today, but I want to end on a positive. And the positive is this. Things can change and policy in government and in schools can change. So if you think a teacher is treating you differently or unfairly, speak up. If you feel like your son or daughter is not getting the education or support they deserve, speak up. Because if enough people speak out for equality within education and the ability for everyone to be better, then things can definitely change. Thank you so much for listening. 
I really appreciate all my listeners and I'm really excited that we have this podcast. Please like and share and review. And next week, I think I'm going to be talking about homework and how absurd it is. Until then, bye.